Hello and welcome to the Pre-Law Land podcast. I'm Luke Kettering. Joining me is Poppy Rotaco. Um, I met her as she was one of my professors at the University of Pittsburgh during my legal studies undergrad. So thank you very much for joining me today. Oh, thanks for having me. <laughs> no problem. Um, and then, so we'll just go through these questions. Hopefully these give people good insight about just the legal profession, how to get into it and also, you have a lot of great advice of you've been around to many different careers. So hopefully you can help out a lot of people. Okay. So basically just starting out, um, your origin story, where are you from and when and why you decide to become a lawyer? Well, I'm not sure this is particularly insightful. So I'm from New Hampshire. I grew up uh, with parents who owned a small local business. They had no involvement in the law whatsoever. They never even went to college. Um, my mother said from a very young age, she felt I would be a good lawyer because I like to argue. <laughs> I think this is like not um, unusual. Right? <laughs> and, uh, and then when I honestly, I think this is a terrible reason to become a lawyer. So please don't follow this. right? But I, I was ready to graduate and I was getting to the end of college and I didn't know what I wanted to do. I didn't know what else to do. Mm -hmm. And I scored very well on the LSAT. And you know, I was still young and single and very much listening to my parents' advice. And so law school seemed like a good option. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so that's why I went, went to law school. Yeah. I, yeah. I think that's kind of, I mean, the way I definitely didn't go into undergrad knowing I want to be a lawyer or even thought about it. Like it definitely wasn't something I knew for a long time. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I think that's a lot of people I know, they don't, I mean, some think about it when they're younger, but I think a lot of people just kind of, it seems like something they'd fit into, but it's not something they grow up with. I know I don't have my parents or my grandparents, none of them are lawyers or in the legal profession in any way. But um, all right, number two, uh, what is your best and or worst non-law job and what did it teach you? You know, I think that the answer to each of those questions best and worst is the same because yeah. <laughs> so I one summer uh, when I was in college I might because as I mentioned my parents owned their own business my sister and I almost always worked for them to help out mm -hmm. <laughs> I don't think we got paid but we almost always worked for them they probably <laughs> they just gave us whatever we needed you know but um one summer, I really want to branch out on my own um, and I, I love hiking and outdoor stuff so mm -hmm. I got a job at a local farm and it was oh, yeah. you know, like a farm stand type farm. So you would pick the produce and it would come into the farm stand and be sold. Um, and so on one level, it was fantastic, right? Because I was outside, I could, mm -hmm. you know, dress in shorts and a t-shirt, fresh air. Um, but on another level, it was horrible, backbreaking work. Like I, <laughs> I just will never view strawberries in the same way. I'm like, yeah, I, have to. You know, I sort of hate them. Picking them's really hard. So um, I think, you know, it was the best job and the worst non-law job. What it taught me is that I really like being outdoors and I really like, you know, that sort of physical activity and labor, but in, in good measure, right? Yeah, yeah. So, so I like that. I like to have balance in my life and I enjoy doing those things, but I'm grateful that I don't have to do that work for a living. Right? Yeah, that, you know? yeah, that definitely makes sense. Cause I know I like working a lot, working out a lot as a hobby. And then for a while I thought maybe that's something I'd want to you know, work as also, but I think I like keeping them pretty separate and just do, making that my own thing more than my actual profession. Yep. Absolutely. Every time I got 
just really stressed out in whatever law job I had, I would think maybe I should be a kayaking instructor. I love paddling. And then I thought, nope, uh-uh. remember this job right I don't want to have to do this every day. Yeah. Just for out of enjoyment, not for professional. Exactly. Um, yeah. I think that's, yeah. I think a lot of people have that same experience with a lot of jobs, just kind of a good learning experience early on. Um, so how did you prepare for the LSAT? I know you said you did pretty well on it, but just how did you prepare and pick your law school or just any general pre-law advice in that area? So honestly, I prepared accidentally because I didn't, you know, I wasn't like you. I didn't go to college thinking, oh, I'm going to go to law school and be a lawyer. I actually, I was a philosophy major. Mm-hmm. And that was, again, not something I planned for. They didn't even offer philosophy at my high school. I just fell into it and really, really enjoyed it. And part of the requirements for being a philosophy major involved the like a logic component, a formal mm-hmm. logic component. So I have always done better in the language arts types classes than math classes. So for me, that would have been the area of the test that would be the trickiest. Um, mm-hmm. So basically, I prepared by taking the logic classes that were part of my philosophy major. Mm-hmm. And then I did do the thing that everyone does, the LSAT prep course. Um, annoyingly, I guess I would say, yeah, I, yeah, you know, they give you a pretest and I got whatever score I got. I can't remember now what it was. And um, then I took the whole class paid for and took the whole class and got the exact same score. At the oh, end. Really? <laughs> and then got the exact same score in the LSAT. So I was clearly meant to get that score. On the yeah. Test pretty consistent <laughs> right and um i do it is my understanding like and i don't know where this information comes from but i feel so i was told by some sort of guidance counselor at some point that the your performance on the lsat does correlate to your performance in law school mm-hmm. perhaps your grades or your gpa or something in a way that most of the other standardized testing does not so it really matters so in terms of advice uh, this is what was told to me, and it seemed to to work out pretty well. Um, you know, once you get your LSAT score, you really want to look at the percentile range for, you know, people who attend the law schools you're interested in, right? Mm-hmm. And if if your score is the you know the bottom twenty fifth percentile or higher, go for it. If you're below the, you know, twenty fifth percentile, it's probably going to be a real reach. I would don't bank on that school, right? Yeah, yeah, so yeah. That, I- that makes sense Mm -hmm. yeah I know because I think law school it's different because my sister she did the whole medical school and um all that which is sort of similar but I think the LSAT is unique but just like what you're saying how much weight it carries because I think that in your GPA at least a lot of things that I've read it's about 80 to 90 percent of your total application wow I mean every I mean obviously there's some like other factors that can maybe change that percentage like your personal statement but yeah really the LSAT is huge and like what you were saying with paying for a prep class I mean obviously that's annoying but if it does help you that is sort of an investment that could help with scholarship money and all that stuff also oh definitely especially if it's as as heavily weighted as we both heard that Mm -hmm. you know that would be a good place to spend your money it's just annoying in my case because it literally changed nothing (laughs) took a lot of my time and energy (laughs) did not have any impact whatsoever yeah yeah in that case I'm sure and I know I took a I didn't major in philosophy or anything, but I did take an argument class on my senior year, which we did a pretty decent bit of argument stuff. But that did give me, I think, a head start as far as just like getting my first test done, just because that basic logic stuff, it really, at least for me, it wasn't, 
intuitive. Like it's definitely a different way of thinking of what you would normally just go into taking a test like that. Yeah, I think that's really fair. Some, some, you know, it either is intuitive for you or it's not. And if it's not, it's very helpful to have some Mm -hmm. instruction before you try to do it. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Right. Um, So I guess after your LSAT, you got into law school, obviously. And as you're saying, you went to Harvard Law School. So um, I think this definitely would apply to this school. Just what did you learn to survive and or succeed in law school? So (laughs) this, you know, it's funny because I, I actually... I hated the first year of law school. (laughs) I really didn't enjoy it. And I think in part it was because I just, I loved college so much and I love being a philosophy major and I loved the discussions and the seminars and the small school environment that I was in at Carleton. And then I got to law school and it was these giant, you know, to me, giant classes, not really, but um, these big sections. And I was very, very insecure. I felt like, oh, I don't know if I belong here. And so for me, the thing that I did that helped me survive, I think, was to just relax a little. Yeah. (laughs) You know, Uh I I had a professor, a crim law, or I don't think it was like a combined procedure law class, my first semester, um, who started the class one day. I can't can't remember if it was the first class or not, but he read a list of names early in the year. Mm -hmm. And, you know already feeling like I didn't belong there. I didn't recognize any of the names. I think one of them was another professor we had. So we all recognize that name, but Mm -hmm. you know, you don't know if anyone else in the room knows, knows all the names and you know, thinking, who are these people? Right. And um, then he gets to the end and he says, so you probably didn't recognize, uh, you know, really any of those names other than your, you know, professor. And of course we're like, I'm like, phew, okay, good. I wasn't supposed to know. (laughs) (laughs) And he says, those are all the people who won the award for having the best grade point average each year at the Harvard law school. Right. And you've never heard of any of them. So don't worry about it. Don't worry about your grades. Right. (laughs) Like you're here, fair or not going to this law school is going to give you a leg up in your career. So try to enjoy your time here. Try to relax. You know, you getting in is the hardest thing and you're here. So I really try to think back on that advice when I would become overwhelmed or, you know, Mm -hmm otherwise disenchanted with the law school experience. <laughs> yeah, I think that's really good advice just in general because there is a lot of people I think try to almost scare you into like your first year, just like how much work and stress you're going to be. And I think it's a good idea just to be like, well, if you're already there, you're probably going to be able to be fine and successful in whatever it is you're going to focus on in law school. Yeah, I mean, it is helpful sometimes to sort of um, scale up your comparisons, right? I mean, if you're admitted to a law school in the U.S., you're doing pretty well in the grand mm-hmm. scheme of things. You know, as far as people around the world, you're probably going to do pretty well for yourself. So, yeah, some perspective can be helpful. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Um, and then also, we were talking about this a little bit before, but your most wild story you can talk about from law school. Right. Okay. So this is a little up there. Um, at least I found this to be quite <laughs> unexpected. So my first year of law school, the first semester, so mind you, school starts what the end of August. I mean, mm-hmm. this is October. This is right around Halloween. Uh, a woman in my class uh, on Halloween came to class dressed up as a dominatrix <laughs> and handcuffed herself to one of our professors <laughs> and paraded uh, this professor over to the student center um, and I, I did not see that coming. I thought yeah. that was pretty wild. 
uh, at the Harvard Law School. <laughs> yeah, I would imagine most most people thought that was pretty <laughs> out of the ordinary. Yeah, it sure was. <laughs> it did not happen again the entire time I was there. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a really good. I think definitely people remember that story. Yeah. Um, and then obviously after the LSAT and get through law school, the next big thing or big hurdle is the bar exam. So sort of just how did you prepare for that or any stories you have about that? Um, probably I didn't prepare well. I know for me, I went straight through college and law school. So by the time, I mean, so high school, college, law school, right? Just my entire life had been schooling. Mm-hmm. I was so ready to be done that when I, they said, okay, I study for this other test. It was like, oh my God, you have to be kidding me. So I did this same thing everyone does, right? I signed up for the Barbary bar review class. I went and sat in the classes um, somewhere in Boston. I can't remember. And then I, you know, I did a, a friend of mine and I went to, my parents had a little beach, um, really it was like a one room apartment with a futon, but we went up there once the Barbary stuff was done and took our books out to the beach in Maine mm-hmm. <laughs> and quote unquote studied. <laughs> um, and then, you know, took the exam. I do remember taking the exam somewhere near the seaport in Boston. I just, for some reason, my memories of being on like a dock or something, <laughs> like it must've been a convention center or something. And I, mm. I remember throwing my books in the trash on the way out being like, I hate this. If I, you know, this type, this is just so awful. It seems so like obscure. And, and in part, this is because law schools like Harvard don't teach to the bar exam, right? They are mm-hmm. very theoretical. And so you have to actually, it's like, you just have to then learn everything for the bar that you didn't learn in law school. So yeah. I felt that way. Um, and so I thought like, okay, if I, if I didn't pass, then I'm not meant to practice law and that's it. I'm, I'm so done over this. Um, luckily I did pass. Foolishly, I threw my books away because apparently you can sell those, resell those. Yeah. So, yeah. You know, that was not a wise decision on my part, but um, yeah, there was, I mean, it, it was just... I would say really unpleasant. It's not what you want to do after law school. It seems like a racket to me, honestly. I'm not sure what is gained by it. I feel like there are a lot of ways you could um, test lawyers on state-specific laws um, and areas they're going to actually practice in that would be more, be a better measure of their skills and their qualifications and would benefit probably the lawyer and the clients more than mm-hmm. just a sort of generalized bar exam. And I yeah. understand changed since I graduated in 02 but um that I wasn't a big fan of I don't know anyone who's a big fan of bar exam I really was not a fan of the bar exam um so I guess you did you you did your bar exam like did you have reciprocity with other states then once you got yeah so I took it in Massachusetts because my first job was going to be in Massachusetts Mm -hmm. and so it, Massachusetts does have reciprocity with other states. I've waved into a couple other bars in DC, which everyone waves into. That's got to be a pretty low, low bar, no pun intended. Um, and then I also waved into New Hampshire, where I'm from. So I think that there are some states, at least historically, you know, I, I, when I was, you know, kind of growing up in this area, you couldn't wave into California or New York or Florida. There, mm-hmm. I think sometimes the retirement states are they frown upon waiver. Um, you know, people where people retired in the South and then New York, I think at the time, maybe you can now, I'm not sure, but, but I, my, I had to, you know, get a copy of my score. So it must've had to be high enough in some way to, to wave in. And then you had yeah. to practice for, what is it? I think five of the last seven years. 
in order to wave in. So I was able to wave in after that, which okay. is good because I will never take other bar exams. Yeah, it doesn't sound like it. Nope, not my thing. So I guess the main thing is just taking it where you're going to work for your first job. And then after you work, it's kind of easier. I mean, obviously your score, but then you can kind of go to other states more once you that was my plan that was my plan um I always assumed I'd wave into New Hampshire because I always plan to go back there but of course it's right on the border of Massachusetts like there's no way I didn't really investigate but I'm sure they would have had you know reciprocity I think if you're somebody who knows for example that you know you plan to at some point relocate to a to a non-waiver state it might I know I had friends who did this for example I had a friend who took the New York and the California bar, right? A couple of friends who did this because they had first jobs in New York, but planned to go back to where they were from in California. And so Mm -hmm. the thinking was, if you're going to study and prepare for the bar, just take them then, right? Don't wait to do it again. So a number of people I knew did, did take multiple bars because they, they didn't expect to be able to wave in later just based Mm -hmm. on the rules. Yeah. 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 That makes sense. All right. Um, and then after the bar exam, um, so how did you find your first lawyer job and then any just basic career advice for recent law school graduates and bar passers? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So I was told that if you're fortunate enough to get a job offer from summer employment while you're in law school, you should really take it. And that in part had to do with the the um, economy where it was at when I was in law school. So my first, you know, paid law job out of law school was with a big law firm that I had, you know, done a summer internship with. And so I did, I think it was my 2L summer. And then at the end of the summer, they made offers to people they were going to consider like, you know, full-time hires. And I accepted that offer. This was another poor decision on my part because I didn't, (laughs) I didn't like the work. I like the people. I mean, the you know, everyone was very nice and there, there was nothing wrong with this particular firm. Um, I just didn't like the work. I had this idea that I would take this really high paying, you know, big law firm job, pay off my law school debt, you know, just do it for a couple of years and then go do what I really wanted to yeah. do. Uh-huh. <laughs> I lasted nine months in this job. Um, <laughs> I didn't get fired, just to be clear. I left. Um, but so, so, so much for paying off my law school. <laughs> uh, luckily, I didn't leave my, you know, little law school apartment or go buy a new car or do any other such thing. that yeah. <laughs> But um, for me, in my third year, I took a lot of clinical classes because I had that, you know, just I was so tired of being in school. I want to go do something. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah. I really, really enjoyed my prosecution clinical. And I ended up leaving, you know, nine months after the law into the law firm job to go and work as a, as an assistant district attorney at that same office that I had interned in. Mm -hmm. So both of my sort of first jobs, if you will, came from internships I had during law school, whether or a a summer job. Yeah. I get, yeah, I guess that is just one of the main parts of your summer work. It's just, I mean, obviously getting experience, but also just networking, I guess in general is a huge aspect of that. Um, all right. And then I guess that sort of was connect maybe your first job, but just um, your best and worst story about being a new lawyer. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I don't know. I have a, I guess the worst story for me is probably, was probably just 
that I had made this poor choice to go work in this law firm and I was just unhappy doing it. It's not a great mm-hmm. way to start your career. Right? Yeah. So right I think um, I was assigned, this is just, you know, I think it was random, but I was assigned a part partner mentor at this firm that was, who he was very high up. And, um, and he was also just really volatile, almost like movie level. Like you, for me anyway, I mean, maybe because I didn't grow up around lawyers, I really didn't think this kind of behavior existed outside of the movies. And, um, you know, he would, I guess, I mean, a lot of this I didn't see, but get upset and kind of storm up and down the halls and like shout my name and where is she? Now, a lot of this, you know, was like I hadn't done any, I didn't know how to do anything. <laughs> it's like a fake lawyer at this point, right? I actually wasn't even barred. But there was one particular incident where there was a pro bono case we were working on and some sort of we, we missed a filing deadline. I don't know. I mean, I didn't, not like I had the case file or control over anything, you know, um, but there had to be someone to blame. Right. And, and yeah. so I asked, it was me. I came in to work. I had two administrative assistants who alternated days and had the same name. So oh, yeah, that's one, of them, <laughs> one of them was like, watch out. He's on a rampage. And I thought like, what on earth for like what I don't even know how to do there I I know so little I couldn't have even done anything wrong right (laughs) it turns out you know this misplaced filing couldn't have come to me I wasn't barred I they didn't have me on the list I think his administrative assistant had misplaced a document but he couldn't you know he had to keep working with her so he couldn't get that (laughs) he was just yelling and and to be honest this was probably worse than best again in some ways because I remember being just so young and naive it never occurred to me that you shouldn't stand up to a partner like this. I remember saying something like, look, I'm sorry you're upset. I'll do whatever I can to help fix the situation. Um, you know, regardless of whether it's my responsibility, I don't look like, I don't think it practically could be in this situation, but, mm-hmm. but I'm happy to help. Um, but I just, you know, I don't want to be spoken to like a 16 year old who missed curfew. Right? <laughs> and yeah, then yeah. like, what was I thinking? I cannot uh, accept this. Um, but I did. And so that was kind of miserable and really, I think pushed me maybe in a good way to the point where I was just like, this is not the right environment and job for me and was able to leave. So I think the best story of being a new lawyer, um, I really loved, and I know this is out of fashion right now, uh, anything related to police and prosecution, but I mm-hmm. loved being in the DA's office. I loved the camaraderie of it. I loved it almost felt like being on a sports team. Yeah. I think I took a $90,000 pay cut. I kid you not when I left the firm job to go to the DA's office. Right. So this was like a labor of love. And (laughs) I, um, I, I didn't know any, again, I still knew nothing, but it felt way more collaborative and everyone was sort of, we were literally in the basement of the courthouse. So in the trenches (laughs) together, you know? (laughs) Um, so I just love that environment. And I, I really, I very much at the time believed that I was doing like good for the world, right? Mm-hmm. You know, seeing that justice was done. So I felt just really good every night that I went home. Like I'm doing good work and mm-hmm. you know, I have this team and it's awesome. And so that was probably my best experience, that camaraderie. Yeah. And I'm sure that's a huge difference based on your first place that you're working at. Just <laughs> not really liking it at all. And then working with a great team and getting a lot of work done. It sounds like a huge 180 turn that's for the best yeah Yeah, well I was I was compensated not in money but in (laughs) enjoyment yeah and merit (laughs) um and I guess sort of like what you were just saying with connects this next question of just what was your first big success as a new lawyer 
Oh, geez. I don't know. I don't know that I've had one of those. Um, I'm not sure. Yeah. I can, I can, <laughs> um, I can tell you that I had a, a, this one case, a jury trial, um, where I felt like I had, that's like the only time I really felt like I had like a Perry Mason aha moment, um, which I don't know if your listeners are going to know who that is. <laughs> uh, it's an old TV lawyer, right? But I, I remember doing, I mean, most of the stuff that happens in the courtroom is not as, you know, nearly as dramatic or exciting as what you see on TV, right? Mm -hmm. So I remember I had a case, it was, an, I think, an assault with a dangerous weapon case involving a firearm. And the defendant, you know, was in a vehicle, was a, started as a road rage incident, was in a vehicle with other people. And there was, all of these other people were sort of, like, brought in as witnesses to the defendant's conduct and demeanor. And, it, you know, it was the victim who was the aggressor and whatnot was sort of mm -hmm. the argument. And they were talking about what happened in the car. And it, at one point, I can't remember exactly how it came out, but one of the witnesses talked about pulling themselves out the window of the car and kind of sitting on the windowsill and mm -hmm. making an obscene gesture back at the victim who allegedly had initiated this aggression. And um, the victim, incidentally, in this case, had a criminal history that was pages long. Right? Yeah, yeah. This is not a difficult <laughs> argument for the defense to make. Um, and but but in this particular situation, was in fact not the aggressor. Right? Mm -hmm. I, I believed right. So I remembered the type of vehicle they were driving, and I happened to have owned one at one point. And I also remembered that the rear windows didn't roll all the way down. And this oh, was okay. a very <laughs> large male who was giving this testimony. And I just thought, like, there's no way he could have pulled himself out the window and sat. It just fit. He wouldn't fit, right? Mm -hmm. So at the end of the testimony that day, we asked the judge to order the defendant to bring the vehicle to the courthouse the next morning. And then I had the officer who was, you know, comparably sized to the defense witness, climb in the car and try to pull himself out the rear window, which of course did not roll all the way down. Yeah. I'm right about that. And he couldn't do it. He couldn't fit. And I was so excited. So we recalled him to the stand and we impeached his testimony. <laughs> the judge wouldn't let me take pictures of the officer like half stuck in the window, but she did let us <laughs> photograph the window halfway down. And I was like, this is awesome. This is like TV lawyering. Right? Yeah, that does sound like a TV story or something. That would <laughs> it's a bit ridiculous in that it's just, you know completely collateral to the main issue in the case, but we were able to argue, of course, at the end. Like, why would they lie about something this small if they had nothing to hide, right? You yeah, know? exactly. That was my big uh, Perry Mason moment. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um and I, the next question, um, what skills do you use the most or are most valuable to you as a lawyer? Hmm. You know, I don't, that's a really tough one. Being because a car I, owner and knowing how the windows work. Being able to afford a car with my uh, <laughs> um, No. Uh, so I think like years ago, I would have said, actually, a lot of that like formal logic reasoning skill, right? Being able to piece together an argument, but I don't know. I don't know if that's true. I think that in some ways, as I get older, I feel like maybe I won some cases and motions almost in spite of that, <laughs> because yeah. what I come to realize is that people don't necessarily make decisions based on logic and reason. And this, this is, you know, borne out time and time again, with jury nullification situations and things mm -hmm. like that. But um, I heard, I don't know if you ever listened to Ezra Klein or any of his podcasts, 
Um, I'm not sure. I don't think I know. He's with the New York Times now, but he used to have a podcast on Vox. Um, And I think it was him. I think he's the one I heard use this term uh, being like a logic bully, (laughs) Uh (laughs) which I (laughs) I suspect I may have been. So I I think I would have previously said that skill. And now maybe, um, now maybe it's sort of uh, knowing when to, you know, how to pick and choose your battles. I think Mm -hmm. a little bit of, I think that might be the, the skill that I've learned, right. That I think is probably the most valuable. You just can't fight every fight to the death, right. It's Mm -hmm. not worth it. And it, um, I think it maybe under undermines your, you know, abilities as a lawyer to do that. So probably discretion. (laughs) It's it's probably definitely more, it's definitely like being in a DA's office. I would imagine that's probably even more important. Oh God. Yeah. I think especially now, right. I mean, If you if you're given discretion, you better be using it. That's for sure. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, and then, what is your most favorite or rewarding part about being a lawyer? Well, this is probably very cliched, but I really liked helping people. Mm-hmm. You know, I I feel like and that's why I wanted to be a prosecutor. Again, I know that's very out of out of favor now that that type of a job, but um, I loved. So, so I love, you know, being a a nerdy former philosophy major, right? I love like ethics and and legal ethics and stuff like that. Um, And I, it was, I was really drawn to the fact that the, the job of the prosecutor, the sort of moral obligation and and legal really, you know, obligation of the prosecutor is to see that justice is done. It wasn't Mm -hmm. to win, right? It was to see that justice was done, whatever that entailed. Whereas the job of the defense attorney is to zealously advocate for your client. And I, I struggled with that a lot more because sometimes it, it seemed to me, and this of course sounds very paternalistic in retrospect, but that maybe whatever the client wanted wasn't in their best interest, wasn't in the interest of justice. Whereas on the government side, that was the sort of blanket obligation, see that justice mm-hmm. is done. So I always tried to do that. And I always tried to practice law in such a way that when I went home at the end of the night, I could put my head down on my pillow and I might not be happy with the way things turned out, but I was always, I could feel good about what I had done. Right. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. I, I found that to be rewarding. Yeah, definitely. I think a lot of people share that. Um, and then I guess on the other side of that is, which you kind of maybe already alluded to, it's just your least favorite or most challenging part about being a lawyer. I don't, you know what? I don't know if I have, because if I'm thinking about, you know, the majority of my career as a prosecutor, um, I think, and this might be really personal to me more than anything, but I don't like the lack of control that you have over the cases, right? I mean, I'm, as the prosecutor, I'm not doing the investigations. Mm-hmm. The police are, right? I'm not, you know, the one inter. I mean, in some higher level cases, prosecutors do, do some of that stuff, but um, I didn't like as much as I love being part of a team, right, and that camaraderie, I didn't like being held responsible for things I had no control over. Mm-hmm. You know, so yeah. the evidence wasn't turned over in time, and I never had it. I hated being yelled at by the judge, right? I hated that um, my cases were entirely dependent on whether other people, like witnesses, showed up. And so mm-hmm. it, it was like, I, I must, you know, I'm a very type A, I guess one might say controlling person. <laughs> so I didn't like that aspect of it. I, I absolutely hated um, jobs or working in that job when I worked for say an elected official who didn't give a lot of discretion, right? Mm -hmm. Because situations are so nuanced and varied. Um, I, 
sort of relates to that feeling like you're, you know, at the end of the day, like you did things the right way. I think there's a real balance, right, between respecting the fact that you work for an elected official. And so they're, you know, the, the voters elected that person. And so their mm-hmm. views carry the day um, on a on a higher level. I understand and accept that. But on a sort of day to day, case by case level, um, broad mandates like you know, don't reduce this type of charge or always plead this out to jail time become, I think, problematic. So I didn't like that lack of control either. Mm-hmm. Basically, I couldn't control everything. I did yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm sure that would be very frustrating, especially with just how busy that type of job would be and how much work you're trying to get done and just sort of mandates that you don't really agree with. I'm sure it would be very frustrating, especially because they kind of affect you every day, I guess. Now, for me, it's ultimately why I left, you know, mm-hmm. prosecuting because I just didn't feel like I could be okay with what I was being asked to do. You mm-hmm. know? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, and then next question, um, if you have a wild lawyer client story that you've either heard about or firsthand experience that you'd want to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I have another one that's a little risque, but um, this was... <laughs> This was just, it's almost like a little sad, funny, but I, I, in one of those, you know, years that I was working as a prosecutor in the lower level court and cases were just kind of coming and going and um, you would almost not like you tracked the case all the way through, but you'd pick up a bunch of files the day of or the day before and prep them for, this is what happened in this case. I had a bunch of files I prepped for motions um, and I can't remember what, maybe bench trial. I can't remember what the particular legal issue was or if it was a trial, but um, the victim in the case came in to court uh, for the trial or motion, whatever it was, she had to testify. And it was hot. It was summer. And she was wearing a tank, a very low cut tank top. Mm-hmm. And she had her name <laughs> tattooed across her chest, yeah. but not straight. Like it actually went down into her cleavage and came <laughs> up the other side. And it was just totally visible. And I just, and we had a, an older white male judge and I remember thinking like oh my god (laughs) please (laughs) so luckily one of the victim witness advocates had a a shirt that she was able to offer her yeah um, her I mean I guess what was wild about it was maybe the tattoo itself I've just never seen anything like that yeah like a permanent name tag (laughs) right but like down it was like the m shape from like a seagull or an m &M you know mcdonald's right it was like (laughs) her (laughs) so (laughs) i don't know it was pretty wild yeah ultimately not a problem but a little bit crazy (laughs) oh wait i have another good one if this i don't know if this is like two and not pc but um it really happened so uh, I had a DUI trial, super, super run-of-the-mill, like, you know, DUI, maybe second offense. I can't remember if it was first or second offense. And the trooper, state trooper who made the arrest was actually from another district. And, and the state trooper was covering because somebody was out sick in our district. So it was not someone I regularly work with. And, um, and you know, he didn't know our area that well. In any event, the case, by the time the case went to trial, the defendant had had a sex change. So everything... Mm-hmm was written in one gender, you know, like the report, all of the incidents. And then by the time we got to trial, the defendant had a new gender. So mm-hmm. we actually had to do a motion in limine to our, our decision, of course, was that we would be respectful of the defendant's current gender, but 
we were worried about whether this would constitute some form of perjury because it was a discussion of what happened in the past. So it ended up being kind of a weird technical, like uh-huh. wild technical legal issue where we sought the court's permission to use the new gender and testimony, you know, with anyway, it was kind of wild. That was a little bit crazy too. Um, yeah. And I'm, that's kind of like a big, um, like a lot of big ideas in that. <laughs> yeah. Right. I mean, not your typical motion in limine before a trial, but mm-hmm. we were allowed to do it and it, it all worked out fine, but, but it was yeah. a little bit, that was kind of an unusual situation. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure. Um, and then I guess you kind of talked about this a little bit earlier, but just um, how do you not let the law take over your life and just achieve a good work-life balance? Mostly drinking, I think. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I'm just kidding. Um, you know, I don't know that anyone does a great job of this in any career, right? But uh, I think I think for me it was it is constantly taking stock of that, right, and reassessing and making different choices. Um mm-hmm. When I had a child, I left the practice of law because uh, the law I practiced, you know, required me to be tethered to a courtroom and it just didn't fit with, um, you know, the life, the balance that I wanted. Right. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to to be able to be more present and I was lucky enough to be able to do that. So I don't think it's easy to not let it take over. I think you really do this idea that one can have it all. I don't know who those people are, but they're not me. (laughs) And I definitely (laughs) had to get certain things up. Um, And that's, I think that's okay. I don't think that's, you know, necessarily a bad thing. I think what's, what's harmful is when you feel like you should be able to do it all right. There's this sort of normative, you know, feeling that you, that you're doing something failing if you don't, can't have it all. But I think, Mm -hmm just recognizing that ha- like achieving that balance is going to involve sacrifice and compromise and mm-hmm. it's not all going to be rosy, you know? Um, did you ever, I know I, I had an internship at a police department and I know a lot of them, they would always say their big thing was try to still be friends with people who aren't other police officers. But do you ever have kind of a similar thing where just sort of all your friends are just also lawyers? <laughs> yeah, <that laughs> law school's a little all-consuming. Um, you know what? Probably, if I think of my closest friends, they are almost all lawyers. I do have some friends from college and childhood who are not, you know, in any way involved in the law. Um, my husband, and I guess, doesn't. He was in law enforcement, so kind mm-hmm. of similar. But like I said before, my family has nothing to do with the law and I'm very close with my family. I live near them. So I think maybe that provided that sort of that balance. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that I think that is probably wise. Um, and also just having other interests, even with my friends who are lawyers, like we all practice in different areas of law. I have no idea what they do. Honestly, some of them, I couldn't even <laughs> explain to you what their jobs are. So, yeah, yeah. Um, so, you know, we don't talk, we talk about like parenting, right. And could we take a trip or something, you know, not obviously in the middle of the pandemic, but, you know, so I think that's probably sage advice. If you can't find a way to avoid talking about work all the time. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, all right. Um, next question is what is something that you do as a lawyer that allows you to make a difference? Obviously you've had a job where you were like day to day making big differences in everyday people's lives. You know, I can't, I'm like, as we sit here now, I'm trying to think of a job that you can have as a lawyer that doesn't allow you to make a difference. I think this is partly why a lot of people are drawn to the profession. Um, There are, you know, areas of law, like I said, that I don't, um, 
understand, like certainly couldn't mm-hmm. practice. Um, I have a friend who does something involving blockchain and Bitcoin. I don't even really know what those are. So, I mean, who knows? But um, I just, you know, if I think about my own life, right, I don't, you know, I don't do housing law, for example, but if I needed a housing lawyer, I'd be really grateful there was one, you know, mm-hmm. to help out. And um, I mean, I think all, I constantly, as I watch the news, think about the ACLU and I may not agree with everything they do, but thank God they're there, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I don't know. I think that as much as people like to, you know, pile on lawyers and, you know, what is it like the lawyers are the first one off? I forget like every lawyer joke, right? The yeah. Lawyers are going down. Um, it's like, it's like that cliche is true, right? Everyone hates a lawyer till they need one. Um, it's just such a, the law is so complicated and varied and dense and perhaps unnecessarily so, but it is what it is. And so thank God there are lawyers, right. Who, who, I guess on the one hand, make it complicated, <laughs> but then also help you sort through it. So, um, you know, I don't know that I ever, I guess just, just being willing to do that kind of work. Right. I don't know how much, I mean, now I'm teaching. So I don't know, like, I mean, you know, do I make a difference? Hopefully for at least some students, you mm-hmm. know, I guess I'm thinking about things in a different way, um, thinking about the world in a different way. But as a practicing lawyer, I I honestly can't say I made a difference in any individual case. There's, like I said, so much of it's that's outside of your control, right? Mm-hmm. You know, it's um, it's hard to say. I think maybe sometimes just the fact that you're there and willing to help and there's like safety in numbers, right? If a victim is afraid of a situation or afraid of a prosecution and you're just there and you're willing to do the work and, and be supportive, that in and of itself makes a difference, reg- mm-hmm. you know, regardless of the outcome, maybe. Yeah, definitely. And I think that's important what you're saying about, like, if you were doing a housing thing, you need like a housing lawyer, just sort of, even if you think it's a little thing, I think that's one of the things that attracted me about law is just like how literally everything has to do with it in some way. So like, even if you're someone who's like a director trying to make a movie, you'd need lawyers and stuff like that. So sort of just, you kind of just need help. Even if it's not a huge thing, it's still help in some way for some people. Yeah. Everything's interconnected. I mean, I think America has a very individualistic society, right? That's our sort of approach is like individual exceptionalism. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. But you know, at least as far as the law is concerned, it's really, you, you just can't know it all, right. You can't possibly manage it all. You just need people to be able to um, help out in these situations. So I agree. I don't think there is a small thing because even if, you know, you might say like, oh, it's like entertainment, who cares, right? I mean, people are employed in that industry. That's their livelihood, right? It all, it's all interconnected. So I think that, you know, hopefully it's people are, are being helped by lawyers. Yeah, definitely. I think so. I know I've been personally helped by them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, what is one misconception that the public has about lawyers that you'd like to clear up? Hmm. Well, <laughs> I don't know about that. Um, I guess collectively it might be that there is a collective, you know, descriptor that's accurate, right? <laughs> like, I feel like when you talk about lawyers as a group, that's like talking about doctors as a group, right? There's so many different yeah. mm-hmm. specialists. It's like when people, you know, are like, oh, I, I took a trip to Africa. <laughs> like, what part? <laughs> like, the, what country? Yeah. Continent, right? Um, <laughs> that doesn't make any sense, right? So talking about lawyers writ large is maybe a little, that would be a misconception in and of itself. But I think, I guess one thing that I would say, and I, I guess this, you know, of course, wouldn't hold true, even for everyone across the, the um, even the smaller, like, subset of lawyers. But when I worked as a prosecutor, 
I didn't, I knew very, very few prosecutors who were like out to, you know, get anyone or who were um, like, what is the, like the term that's used just sort of like they, I can't think of the exact, the way to, to phrase this, but who were malicious or Mm -hmm. intentionally vindictive or, you know, punitive. I really, really didn't encounter those people. Um, Or if I did, I was somehow oblivious to it. I, which I don't think, I mean, these are the kinds of things I think about. So Mm -hmm. um, I really do think that at least in that profession, a lot of the people working in it are well-intended. It doesn't excuse some of the things that happen. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, they're obviously are bad actors, but I just didn't, the same thing with police. I didn't, you know, at least to my knowledge, come across a lot of police officers planting evidence or doing these crazy outrageous things. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, So I don't know this idea that the government is sort of like out to get you was just not supported by my own experience. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, that said out to get you or not, I, you know, I, like I said, I, I didn't agree with the sort of turn of politics that that happened while I was working as a prosecutor. And so I left, you know, so who knows, maybe things have changed. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Whoever still feels comfortable being in that job. But I say that because, I mean, joking aside, I think there are different ways to affect change, right? You can, you can attempt to, uh, you know, dismantle or improve or modify a system from the outside, but you can also work from the inside. Mm-hmm. And I think it takes almost, exceptional stamina, right? Uh, to be able to do that, to be able to go inside a system, uh, that you have qualms with and, and try to do good work. Right. Mm -hmm. So I think those people are out there, right. I don't think everyone is let's incarcerate every, you know, drug user. I don't think that's true. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I guess sort of continue on to that is if you have a favorite depiction of lawyers in a any sort of movie or TV or book or just any entertainment? Okay. Um, so I, <laughs> I, uh, I'm not a good TV movie watcher. I do like to read a lot, but I don't really read about lawyers. I, so I like, I think everyone I've ever met liked the movie, my cousin Vinny. It's just really uh-huh. well and very funny. Um, but I have to say there was this one movie, um, really obscure, like that I saw growing up. I can't even remember when I don't know, it probably came out in the eighties um, called from the hip and it Judd Nelson is like the actor who's featured. In it. mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just completely absurd. It is an absurd film. It's probably not even very good, but for some reason I loved it. Yeah. <laughs> I honestly haven't seen him probably it feels like a hundred years, but I do remember loving that, like the drama of that movie. Um, I'm gonna have to go watch it again now and see how how bad. It is. Yeah, I'll have to look in. I've never heard of that movie. I have to yeah, I, th- I think there's a reason for that. Probably. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, if you're if you have limited time, watch my cousin video. I'm sure it's much better. <laughs> but yeah, that Judd Nelson film at the time, I don't know why I really really liked it. <laughs> yeah, something connected with you from it. Wait, you wait, you'll see. you like that is a whole other interview. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and I guess like you kind of, if you have any book recommendations or books you've learned the most from. Oh, well, well, probably cause I'm a nerdy philosophy major. Um, I think some of, so one of the books that I really love that I just found 
uh, really shaped my own sense of justice and morality uh, is Contingency, Irony, and Solidarity by Richard Rorty. He was a philosophy professor. Um, actually, I think he ended up being a professor of literature at UVA. And then maybe went out to California. He's, he's no longer alive. Um, but I really like Rorty. Um, and I like that book in particular, Contingency, Irony, and Solidarity. So I also, um, so on the total other end of the spectrum, I guess, um, I love Ronald Dworkin. <laughs> I love, he's also no longer around, but um, like I think an easy, okay, easy might be misleading, but a nice um, sort of written, not just for philosophy major, you know, professor type people um, is Justice for Hedgehogs, which is really okay. Um, my favorite non-academic book, I guess, was that the question? I don't know if I learned much from it. I really enjoyed it is, is uh, Joseph Heller's Catch-22, mm-hmm. The Absurdity. I don't know. There's probably a lot of lessons in it. Um, I really like that too. I don't know if these are like not going to be popular <laughs> reads, but <laughs> oh, I'll, I'll look into those. But yeah, those are all probably, I'm sure, very good books to read. I remember because um, I had you for law and politics, and our I don't remember what the name of the book was, but basically the main gist of it was just that just politics and law, like your own political ideas are just intrinsically connected to your own legal beliefs, sort of was like the main gist of it, which I really had never thought of until that class but just I mean really just whatever you think is kind of what you're going to lean towards naturally because there's kind of that conception that just like what you were saying like we're just like as a DA we're just working for justice but again everyone sort of has their own sort of ideas that might skew that in a way. Sure like your own biases. Um, I'm wondering if you're thinking of the Hasnas article. It might it might be that article it was the first thing we read. I yeah, that's probably um, exactly. I'm trying to think. Oh, I can't even remember the title of it. I don't. I don't know. I've got it saved somewhere in here. But yeah, so that I think uh, Hasnas. I think it's John Hasnas. Don't hold me to that. Um, is maybe a professor at Georgetown, and he he did write this fantastic law review article, which you. <laughs> that's often like those words don't like <laughs> fantastic and law review article. <laughs> Uh, used in the same sentence, I think, in terms of like pleasurable reading. But I thought, I think it's a really fun article to read. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, and he talks about the, um, yeah, the indeterminacy of law, right? And and sort of how all law is inherently political. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that's, that is a good, I'm trying to find the name for you. So if your listeners want to look at it, I'll come up with it. Um, there, but, there was also, there was like a little quiz in it, I remember. Like you yes, that's exactly time. what it is then. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, here we go. The myth of the rule of law. That's what it's yeah, called. Yeah, yeah. It was in the Wisconsin Law Review in 1995. So it's a bit dated, but still fantastic, right? I will say that I have to offer, it is John Hasnas, and he at least, oh, Duke. Oh, no, that's where he got his degree. Hold on, where is he? Yeah, I think he at the time was a professor at Georgetown. So I'm not entirely sure if that's still where he is. But I will say I very intentionally do not assign the last section of that piece because, um, in my view, it goes a little off the rails. <laughs> that's yeah. just my own legal theory view. Um, but the the first chunk of it is really fantastic. It's fun to read. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good. Um and then we sort of talked about this a little bit, but um, if you could change or eliminate one law, what would it be? Oh, gosh. So this is 
it's probably gonna so it's not even there's like I think within the field of criminal law there's so many that I don't know where to start um Mm -hmm. but I think I think that I would change the law surrounding um like the inheritance tax right I think I would I know I would. I don't know how, because I don't know exactly how it works. But I think that I would. Whatever was undone that allows inheritance to go largely untaxed now. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that sort of perpetuation of wealth um, in one family is problematic. And I think mm-hmm. it'd, be, it'd be sort of an easy target um, to start chipping away at the wealth gap. Yeah, especially, especially like now more than ever, especially. Right. Yeah, yeah. So um, that it's not, I don't, I'm like really, you know, ill-informed on the details of it, but just like policy wise, that's, that's a, to me would be a no brainer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I guess you're sort of already in this last question. I mean, the second to last question, but um, do you have any plans or goals outside the legal profession or post being a lawyer? <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> I have lots of them, right? So like I, I, you know, I like teaching, so that's worked out and it's been really fun, but mm-hmm. like completely unrelated. Um, yeah, I have bucket list type things I want to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, I don't know. I, I already learned to drive a stick shift that was on my bucket list. Um, <laughs> I've always wanted to be a telemark skier. I'm working on that. Not quite there yet. Um, mm. but yeah, I think, I mean, I think most of my life, to be honest, right now centers around my child. Mm-hmm. I have a very short-term goal of getting him back into a school. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> in person. <laughs> um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, turns out I'm like an awesome parent when I am not a 24-7 parent, <laughs> um, or at least better than them. And I'm also apparently not a very good grade school teacher, so yeah, yeah. I'll stick to the law. Um, but yeah, no, I, I, I mean... I think that I think that for the most part, um, maybe I'm just a little impulsive, but I don't wait on these things, right? The goals mm-hmm. that I have, I try to start working on. You never know; life could be much shorter than you think. Right? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, definitely. All right, and then um, just last question: What is the best wisdom or life advice you've ever received? Oh boy, that's a toughie. Uh, you know. Again, this is maybe very specific to someone like me or, or my personality, but uh, my father had always said to me ever since I was a child, uh, don't worry about things you can't control, um, which is, I think, very sound advice because it's not particularly fruitful to worry about things you can't control. So I do find it important to remember that when I, especially this day and age, when you get easy to get overwhelmed about the state of affairs in the world right mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. of course the flip side of that right is that maybe you should worry about things you can control and if a lot of mm-hmm. us spent more time doing that um like ourselves and our own conduct and behavior uh, that would be a good thing i do think you know maybe sort of more relevant to the the you know, purpose and topic of this podcast. Um, I don't know if I've ever shared this with you, but I have with a few other students and I don't, I don't remember who said this to me. I'm not very good. I'd be a great person to tell secrets to because I can, I forget who it is, but um, someone once told me when I was trying to struggling to make a career move, like, and in fact, it was when I was trying to decide whether to leave that law firm to go back to the DA's office that I had mm-hmm. interned in. 
And I was, you know, it was a $90,000 pay cut. It did not seem like a prudent decision to make. <laughs> and I also, there were things about being a DA, you know, an ADA that I didn't love, right? And so I was trying to weigh all, you know, all the pros and cons. And someone said to me, you know, you're going to drive yourself crazy if you try to find the perfect job, right? That's mm-hmm. not, first of all, it probably doesn't exist, but also it's just not a realistic, you know, measure. So, so look for something that's 80% of what you want to do. Mm-hmm. And if every time you make a decision, it's 80%, what you want to do, you know, you're going to obviously narrow, right? 80% of like this, right? Then, you know, you're getting closer and closer mm-hmm. to the thing that you might not even know exists that you want to do. So I really have found that to be useful advice. Like, don't worry about perfection. Just find something that's 80% what you want to do. There's always going to be something you don't like. And if you keep doing that, you'll get closer and closer to where you want to be, whatever that may be, right? Mm-hmm. Even if it's unknown to you. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely great advice, especially nowadays. I mean, people are sort of, I think COVID's led to a lot of just people being like, what do I really want to do? And then doing it, <laughs> I think is one good thing to sure. come from all this. Taking but, um, stock, right? Mm-hmm. But yeah, that's the last question. Um, is there anything you would like to promote or talk about in addition to these questions? So I'm, uh, these are kind of University of Pittsburgh specific, but um, mm-hmm. I would say that we have a couple exciting things going on uh, where I work, not COVID notwithstanding, um, uh-huh. will, not be, will not be beaten down, <laughs> which is, uh, so, so the big, big one is that um, we have just received approval for and are going to uh, commence with a new major um, at the undergraduate level called Law, Criminal Justice and Society. And this major will sit in two different schools at the university, the College of General Studies, which targets primarily non-traditional students, you know, working Mm -hmm. parents, returning veterans, people who um, not always, but often have a a lot of life experience, right, to to bring to the table. And it will also sit in the Dietrich School, which is the traditional um, undergraduate college at the University of Pittsburgh. Um, And so often the students come straight from, as I, as you know, it was my own experience straight from high school mm-hmm. um, and, you know, are very highly qualified academically. Um, so, so this, this new major uh, will sit in both of those schools, bringing those two groups together so they can learn uh, with and from each other. And the, the core curriculum of the major will focus uh, really on comprehension and critical analysis of the legal system, uh, criminological theory, criminal justice institutions, the criminal law itself, and social inequality. So mm-hmm. I think it's, I mean, I don't know that you could argue it's not very timely. It's very timely, right? I mean, uh-huh. this, this, uh, this major, and we're really, really excited about it. Um, so that is a, a kind of big thing going on at the university. Um, and then for the folks who are already there uh, and already majoring in our criminal justice-related um, majors, right? So it's a little bit of using that word a lot. We're we're reactivating the the Pitt chapter of the American Criminal Justice Association um, fraternity. And so we're excited about starting restarting that organization and the mm-hmm. networking and learning opportunities that it will bring to our students. That's about that it. <laughs> sounds good. Sounds great. Yeah. Um sounds all good things. Um Thank you very much for answering these questions and talking with me. I'm sure this will help out a lot of young pre-law students or is anyone want to learn more about the profession, but um, thank you again for everything.
Well, thanks for having me. It's been fun to catch up. Yeah, it's been great. All right, thank you. Okay, take care.